Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Bill Scher. It's a pleasure to have on the show today the author of On This Date and the Washington Bureau Chief of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon. Thanks for being on. Uh, it's my pleasure, Bill. So this book, On This Date, is a book of historical vignettes for every day in the calendar year, but it's not just a random collection of, of vignettes. I, I, I felt like there was an overarching message and theme you were trying to convey. Do you, do you think that's a, a fair conclusion to draw? I was hoping readers would get that conclusion. Not, not one maybe overarching conclusion, but several. Um, and I kind of came to those conclusions myself while writing the book. Um, one of them, Bill, is that America, Americans are problem solvers. Um, we've, you know, we we face problems. It doesn't seem like there's anything been ever quite like Donald Trump. All right. I grant you there's never been anything quite like Donald Trump. But but we've had presidents who are unpopular. We've had popular. We've had elections where the popular vote winner didn't win. We've had times in our country where we're at each other's throats. And, you know, we usually. We usually um, come through all that. We 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 figure it out and we often come off usually better than we were before. So we, when you first had the idea for this book, had Donald Trump already been elected? No, I, I've been writing these morning notes. You know, in, in Washington, everybody puts out their note. The Politico does it. Mike Allen used to do it. Uh, started Mark Helprin did it at ABC. There's a little note, and it's, it's a little political thing for political junkies who get sites like Politico or Real Clear Politics. And basically, it's to tout the stories, the original content you have on your site in that day. But everybody was already doing that. So I began writing gradually at first, just a little thing that happened in history on that day. And but that was, you know, you don't want to just just be writing history. You want to connect it to what's going on today. So and and along the way, I found out this thing began reflecting my personality, which tends to be optimistic. Um, and so I, I would point out something maybe terrible that happened, but how we had gotten through it and kind of related it um, to what was going on in American politics. I, When I began this, Barack Obama was still in his first term and I did it through the 2012 campaign and then right up till now. And so after you've been doing the morning note for several years at realclearpolitics.com and you decided to turn that into a book, uh, was it simply a process of going back into your old newsletters, cutting and pasting, boom, I have a book? That's what I had hoped. And when I signed my contract with my publisher, uh, 12 books, I thought that's what would happen. Um, <laughs> turns out, you know, a book is different. And I'm old school enough, you know, Bill, I still get the paper. I get the Washington Post delivered to my door. And I still have it in my hands. And so, you know, a book, you want it to be good. And so I had 300... I had about 1,500 of these essays to choose from. I had to pick 365. I noticed a couple things right away. The first was that 
for just the vagaries of the calendar, some dates, you know, I'd have like five really good notes and have to choose. And some other dates I'd have, I'd have nothing. I did, you know, January 1st to December 31st, although I skip around in years. And so I had to do some, some research. Then the second thing I noticed is you, you got a book with 366 essays, actually, because you leap year. And actually there were a couple others because I, two dates I did twice. So you had 368 essays. Well, you can't have 40 of them about Lincoln. So I had to, you know, get, and, and then you want to have, you want to have a demographic mix. You want to have a mix in terms of you know, left, right, center. You want to have a mix, different subjects. Again, if, you know, I would have 15 or 20 on baseball and none on golf or football. So that's not right. And, and then, so I, I began to mix and it was like this giant jigsaw puzzle. And I wanted to have something that reflected the United States of America, but also, you know, that was notes. And then the second thing I noticed, Bill, is that you got to do fact checking. You got to check all your, you know, the, the daily note, I'm batting it out at six in the morning. I, I hope that it's good, but it's not error free. So I had to fact check. And then because I didn't want the book to be as long as War and Peace, I had to cut down the prose. And basically, I ended up re-reporting and rewriting every single one of them. So it was a lot more work than I thought when I signed the contract. Well, it's, it's, it's an amazing piece of work and I, and I appreciate you putting in the time into it. Uh, you mentioned that you have an optimistic uh, outlook in general. And, and I have to say the, the book feels like, like a love letter to America, but, but it's not a whitewash of America that you dig up some shameful episodes that are, that are not very widely known. You know, the slaughter of Christian Indians, <laughs> you know, a lot of, look, there are a lot of things that this country uh, has to answer for, and some of them we have answered for. Some of them we have yet to answer for. And so, yeah, I didn't. I don't. You know, white. Look, nobody wants to read a whitewash. I I love this country. I think we're going to figure it out eventually. But there's still work to do, and we've had to do painful things all along. But but one thing, you know, if you think about American history, in my in my view, it's part of this thing, this this experiment, democracy, this this idea that the divine right of kings is there's a better form of government. It's also, it's the gradual, sometimes quick, but usually gradual extension of human rights and to people who don't yet have them. It's this constant expansion. And if that sounds like a liberal idea, I think it is a liberal idea. You know, I found, I wanted to do the first divorce in America. Just, I was curious about it. I hadn't written a note about this, but I thought in the book, well, who got the first divorce? Well, it's, you know, early pilgrims, Puritans, they're getting divorced because their husbands are off, you know, leaving for and starting second families. And and there's this early writing uh, in the 1600s about, you know, marriage is a civil contract. It's not, the church has limited input into it. It's a, it's a, it's a line. These are early Protestants that they get from Martin Luther. And so I write that you know, if you really think about it in terms of this extension of human rights, gay marriage is is a seed planted by Martin Luther. It comes across in on the Mayflower. It comes across the ocean, and it takes a couple, of, you know, three or four hundred years for it to grow. But when it finally flowers, there's no stopping it. So that's an example of things I discovered while doing the book. So the thing to me was it was a great discovery myself. 
drawing those connections from the past to now is one of the strengths of the book. And you mentioned that slaughter of Christian Indians, uh, which is something I, I was not aware of. This is a, in the 18th century. But then you tied it to what happened with um, uh, Tecumseh and, and, and General William Harrison in, in, you know, you know, decades later. Uh, uh, how, how did you figure out how to find uh, things that happened long, long time ago and then trace their impacts that could never have been predicted at the time? Well, partly it's, a, it's you follow the stories, where they go. And, um, you know, the, Tecumseh, the, the, the one you're talking about happened in March 1872. Uh, the chapter title is Massacre, excuse me, Massacre on the Tuscaroras. And it's a river uh, in 1782. And, you know, there, there is these. This is slaughter. These Indians. They were in a church. They were hiding. They 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 converted to Christianity. They were farmers. Um, they had done nothing wrong. Some other Indians had maybe menaced some. some you know, look. I, I don't mean maybe some other Indians had killed settlers, but these people hadn't. And they were, and they were, um, they were slaughtered, they were murdered. It was a, it was a war crime. We call it today. Uh, and Tecumseh, the great Indian chief. Um, this set in motion his implacable distrust of whites. And when he met with Harrison at a parlay in 1810, he said to him, Tecumseh said, when Jesus Christ came upon the earth, you killed him too and nailed him on a cross. And so, and, and this, this chief, he was the first one who understood um, that the, all these tribes needed to band together and, and fight the white men. He was ultimately unsuccessful, as we know. Um, but it helped further Harrison's career and led to, and you and I are political junkies, Bill, led to one of the great slogans in the history of American electioneering, uh, tip a canoe and Tyler too. Um, what other uh, Native American story that you get into is Pocahontas, which is also uh, uh, potentially going to be a figure we talk about in the years to come because uh, Donald Trump uses that as a insult to Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, Warren has always cl- uh, said that in her family lore that she is, has Native American uh, ancestry, uh, and conservatives criticize her and say she's uh, she she made it up for personal uh, advancement. And Warren gave a speech recently to a Native American group where she says, when Trump does that, she's going to tell the the real story of, of Pocahontas, uh, and. And how Trump only talks about it to make Native people uh, the butt of a joke, uh, and that the Pocahontas story is 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 much darker than the Disney version of it. Uh, it is that the way you uh, approach the Pocahontas story and on this date? No, I, the, the Pocahontas uh, in my book is April fifth, sixteen fourteen. Um, you know, look, Pocahontas. I, I I sort of I think I probably disagree with Elizabeth Warren uh, in all of her particulars on this story with one exception. Yeah. It's not a Disney story and Pocahontas, uh, you know, married to an Anglo taken back to England dies of disease. You know, it wouldn't pass muster today, Bill. She was a child bride. We, we don't approve of that. Uh, on the other hand, um, Donald Trump isn't making fun of Pocahontas. He's making fun of Elizabeth Warren. He's making fun of the idea of, of people, white people who, you know, appropriate an identity for career advancement. And, uh, 
Warren's defenders say that it, she didn't use it to advance her career, but I don't think that's correct. She, when she was hired at Harvard, uh, they put out a press release. We've hired a person of color. We, you know, and but Pocahontas was, she was, um, she, look, she doesn't belong to anybody anymore. She's entered. She's uh, she had a larger than life personality when she lived. She was one of these amazing people and uh, born in a different century. She could run for president. She could she could have done anything. Uh, her biographer, William Watson Waldron, put it this way. Now, he's writing in 1841, so you know, 200 years later. Pocahontas is one of those characters, rarely appearing on the theater of life, which no age can claim, no country appropriate. She is the property of mankind, serving as a beacon to light us on our way, instruct us in our duty, and show us what the human mind is capable of performing when abandoned to its own operations. So I think I don't. I think much more highly than I of Pocahontas than I do of, of uh, either Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren. If they want to put it, well, even on the, those in, terms. That, in that nineteenth-century biography, Warren says the Pocahontas story is a fable used to bleach away the stain of genocide. It, it was was that what was happening with that nineteenth-century biography? No, that's not. That's that's not what Pocahontas is used for. What she's used for is to show. Uh, the universal traits that bind us together. Um, she, you know, people, yeah, every age wants to use Pocahontas to make their little partisan point. That's what Warren's doing. But we need to take a step back and, and see her for the extraordinary woman she was and figure out what, what she would want us to do. Uh, you know, this, the stain of genocide is, that's in my book. That's, that's not to be, that's not to be minimized. And, and there's other um, in there's other native people like Quana Parker, half white, half in half half Comanche, who I tell the story through, and Chief Joseph. I mean, the Nez Perce people who who had befriended Lewis and Clark saved them. That's another Indian woman, Sakawajaya. So you know, there's a lot to answer for, as I say, and, and I deal with that in um, in this book in several places. I just I don't I don't think we ought to put it in sort of um, campus. You know, politispeak, though, I think we ought to talk about it, it use English words, <laughs> be honest about what we did to these people and what we should still be doing to help. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you tried to strike a balance in the people you referenced and the subjects you covered. Uh, there are some names that do come up more than others, and often they, they are presidents. Uh, but as you might expect, you have multiple references of, of FDR and, and JFK. But I noticed Woodrow Wilson came up a lot, uh, who's not a president that is, all, is often on the, on, the, on the tip of our tongues. Do you, do you have a sense why uh, him in that point in history kept, kept drawing you back? Well, Wilson's, you know, he's a pivot point. And, and he's, a, he's a guy who, who comes out of one century when his first, his earliest memory in his life is uh, when he, he's a Southerner, you know, is seeing is seeing the troops march in the Civil War and and having his father say this means there'll be war and then he goes to he, Princeton he's a progressive not he's not a progressive on race he's a progressive on other things and he sort of brings that helps bring the Democratic Party into the 20th century he's also an accidental president um, if Teddy Roosevelt hadn't mounted a third party charge Wilson wouldn't have been elected he's also an academic and the famous uh, academic phrase. Uh, that you hear in the academy, the reason the politics of the academy are so vicious is because so little's at stake. That's originally Woodrow Wilson. Um, nobody's ever traced it further. I think that was his observation. So he's an interesting character. The other, but you know, you mentioned Presidents Bill. I would have, 
I, as I was mentioning, as I was saying, I surprised myself a little bit in this book. When I got to the end of it, I realized I have more on Truman than I do on FDR. Well, you know, to my dad's generation, I, my father was born and Harry you know, Roosevelt was president all his life till he died, my father's life. And when he when Roosevelt died in 1945, my father said to his father, said, well, who could be president? And and then and when Truman leaves office, you know, seven years later, he's got uh, poll numbers that are like Richard Nixon numbers, uh, you know, <laughs> very unpopular. The Democrats wouldn't even campaign with him uh, in 1950. Uh, you know, he's not he leaves office not quite in disgrace, but roundly dismissed. And yet now he's emerged in the time since then as kind of the patron saints of beleaguered presidents. He's one of the few presidents. He's like Lincoln, that presidents of both parties invoke. And he looks better with each passing day. You know, he did. Look, he he integrated the armed force of the United States in 1948 with a stroke of the pen. And and what had happened was you had these these African-American GIs and, and sailors coming back. And if they lived in the South, they were being denied jobs. They were being denied the right to vote. Some of them were being lynched. and and Truman thought this was an outrage. And he did with a stroke of the pen what what FDR, what Eleanor Roosevelt couldn't even get FDR to talk about. So Truman kind of, you know, to me, he he um, he lives on. He's a guy who he sticks out in time. He, he passes the, the test. Now, you had a, a previous book, uh, The Pursuit of Happiness, correct? Yeah, it's called The Pursuit of Happiness in Times of War. And uh, you had an interview about that book where you noted that you um, you, you didn't mention Nixon. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, you you compensate for that by making sure Nixon gets uh, his fair share of time in in this book on this date. Uh, can you can you explain what uh, propelled you to give Nixon a second look? Well, I don't really give Nixon a second look, um, uh, Bill. As much as I just um, confronted my own bias and decided to try and overcome it, I grew up in a house where Nixon was not respected or liked, and and when he became president and the way he went out of office sort of confirmed what what my people always thought of Richard Nixon. But look, all presidents have good things about them, or they wouldn't be president. In Nixon's case, I mean, he he looks he, he Donald Trump, you know, was his mercurial as, as Nixon in his personal life and his kind of this way, this Manichaean way he looks at the world and this dark view of his enemies. But Nixon was well-read and intelligent. He had a worldview. He, he might look better than he did at one point. But I, I just talk about the human point of Nixon. And I make a point. The, the interview I gave was to Brian Land. He was interviewing me on C-SPAN about my first book. And he said, you, you have good things to say about every president. And in that book, I, I was dealing sort of tangentially with this idea of American exceptionalism. And I said, well, look, there's two groups of people who get American, who get America's point in the world and our place in the world, and that's presidents and immigrants. And I thought that was a profound point, which I <laughs> I amplify on in this book. This book uh, on this date is, de is dedicated to immigrants. But Brian Lamb, you know, always playing the straight man says, uh, well, I noticed, you, you know, you, you didn't mention Richard Nixon. And I, no, I said, I, I said, but you'll know Nixon's not in there. And uh, Brian didn't laugh. And so I thought about, well, I got to get Nixon in this book. <laughs> um, you're seeing a lot of, you know, Nixon Trump parallels now because uh, this is 2018. There's a special counsel investigation going on. Uh, a lot of the Trump uh, 
criticisms of the investigation tracks how Nixon, his allies, criticize uh, the Watergate investigation. Um, uh, it, are there that many parallels there, or is Nixon a wholly different kind of uh, creature of, of the presidency than, than Donald Trump? Well, you know, it, my, my father, who worked for The Washington Post for many years and covered the White House, he, he used to have a rule of thumb that if somebody calls up and some anonymous caller and says, uh, in the days when you could actually call anonymously, and says, "Hey, look, pal, I've got a, I've got a uh, story that'll look water, that make Watergate look like a picnic." My dad would hang up on him. So, so the, look, nothing's like Watergate. But having said that, do you remember the, remember the movie Love Actually? And there's a, there's a, there's a right, there's a cameo by uh, Billy Bob Thornton, and he plays, he plays the worst of Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. He's a war warmongering horn dog, you know, and, and it's kind of funny and it's played over the top. But I was I was thinking about that in, in terms of of Trump because he's he. Some days you think it's the worst of you know he's the worst of Nixon, he's the worst of Clinton, he's the, he's the worst of Truman. He's just, you know he's he's sort of a. Some days he seems like an amalgamation of all these worst traits we've had in presidents, uh, and yet he's at forty two percent of the polls. So. Uh, he wasn't he's not much less pop in fact he's about as popular as he was when he was elected president so you know 63 million people voted for him and most of them still like him so i don't want to i don't want to go too far down that road but the, the the watergate scandal still seems to me like nothing else we've ever had to move away from the presidency you do mention uh, uh sports comes up in the book a lot uh and uh, baseball comes up a lot. The Olympics comes up a lot. But you are not just talking about sports uh, in itself, but sports as it relates to uh, politics and, and American society. What, what what prompted you to bring those two subjects together? Well, you know, sports figures are part of the popular culture. So this is not just a political book. But, you know, uh, years after Joe DiMaggio retires, uh, Simon and Garfinkel in their great song, Sounds of Silence, put in that line, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? Our nation, you know, turns its lonely eyes to you. And we've had these, we've had these people who are larger than life. Um, part of the racial story I tell is through uh, Willie Mays and, uh, uh, you know, Larry Doby, not, not just Jackie Robinson. There have been all these firsts, all these people who've done things. And some of them were athletes, a lot, a, a lot of them were athletes. And, uh, you know, Name you don't hear anymore, but uh, Babe Diedrichsen. Uh, I write about her on September 13th, 1949. Um, you know, the question about her is, uh, is she the greatest woman athlete of all time? No, that's not a question. Yes, is the answer. Is she the greatest athlete this country ever produced? Well, yeah, there now you got an argument, but no, probably the answer is Jim Thorpe, a Native American. And I write about Thorpe and, and also about the Carlisle Indians and the great game they played against Army when Dwight Eisenhower was on the Army team and Thorpe was on the Carlisle team. So, you know, sports is a thread and you you don't want to – books that are only about sports, at my age, I don't read them so much anymore, but books that ignore sports are ignoring part of how Americans relate to each other and how part of what's going on as we build this narrative. Now, uh, I'm talking to Carl Cannon, author of On This Date, From the Pilgrims to Today, Discovering America One Day at a Time published by 12 in 2017. Um, this book came out uh, around the time of uh, 
backlash to Colin Kaepernick for taking a knee during the national anthem. Uh, after this book came out, you had uh, uh, a Fox News anchor tell uh, basketball star LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Uh, there seems to be a, this backlash to athletes getting involved in politics. Um, was that always the case when, I mean, you, you're talking about how sports and politics have long been intersected and now it's being treated as if somehow they're, 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 they're getting out of their, uh, they're getting out of their lane for wading into uh, subjects of, uh, of public import. Well, two answers to that, Bill. First is that, you know, it was 50 years ago this, this summer, I guess, probably this autumn, where two, top two American sprinters, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, were sent home from the 1968 uh, Mexico City Olympics for putting on a black glove and raising a fist on the podium to protest racism in America. So this is an old, this is not a new idea. Those guys were amateur athletes. Uh, their careers were cut short. They paid a dear price. What's going on now is is a, is a little different. And and again, I think it it kind of it goes along with the with the Trump election, where you have these these athletes who are making tens of millions of dollars, and they're not. They're not up from the hood as much as they're they're they've got more money than kings. And this idea is that this the country and their sports been very good to them, make them wealthy beyond the comprehension of most Americans. And for them to for them to protest uh, supposed lack of opportunity is cognitive dissonance to many people. So I think I think. But again, that's that's a change. And if you look at there's two ways to look at it. One is you say, well, Americans, you know, still you know, still trying to put blacks in their place. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, is that the money that's come into sports has made a whole class of, of African-American athletes like Michael Jordan, not just athletes, but, but owners, potential owners. Colin Kaepernick is talking about buying a team. And so, again, maybe sometimes feels like one step backwards, but to me, it's two steps forward and one step back. And, and we're still making progress. And the progress here is that the athletes uh, are being paid finally a fair wage. These, these instances are also examples of the political and cultural polarization of the country that uh, I don't know if you can say it started with Trump, but certainly has been accelerated uh, under Trump. Uh, how unusual is it for America to be this polarized? Well, look, Bill, the last time Amer- half the country refused to accept the outcome of a presidential election, Democratic election, um, it led to 700,000 Americans dying in battle or in, in while in military service and hundreds of thousands or more being grievously wounded. So when I say that, my liberal friends go, oh, my God, you can't compare me to a Southern segregationist in 1860. I'm, I'm the liberal here. I'm in faith. Trump's the racist. So I grant that. I, I grant you're offended by my analogy, but I'm making a larger point, which is that we have to, we have to remember, uh, that we have these elections because it's the only way we can figure out how to, uh, you know, because we don't have kings. Now, should we have a straight popular vote? I don't care about that one way or the other. But, but my the point here is that we're in a polarized time. It didn't start with Donald Trump. I would say that the polarization actually produced Trump. Um, he's done nothing as president since the moment he was elected and and including on his inaugural address to ever try and address this or make it go away or make it better. He's seemed to have gone out of his way to exacerbate uh, the, the divisions in the country, which I don't understand. And I don't think is in his interest, but look, this started, you, 
you remember, Bill, you write about politics. Uh, Bill Clinton was a polarizing president. George W. Bush was a polarizing president. At least we were told that. Um, Barack Obama was a polarizing president. But but look at what were they really? Now, they have strong personalities. So does Hillary Clinton. They have, these are people with strong personalities. And if you're on the other side, I see why they get under your skin. But these are not people who govern from the far right or the far left. Um, Trump's predecessors. So the polarization is partly it's it's in the it's in the environment we're in. It's not them. I submit to you that Donald Trump's a little different. I think he exists in a polarizing environment, and he is a polarizing person. And now I'm talking about his policies that he pursues and his rhetoric that he uses. He doesn't he doesn't try to <clears throat> this idea where a, a guy like Barack Obama is really governing from the left but talking from the middle. That turns out to be a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. People think it's hypocrisy. I, I think it's the kind of the politeness that helps make society run. And so when you have a, a person like Donald Trump, we may be in new territory here, I grant you. I don't know. We, I don't know where this is going. You, this book also came out uh, as the Me Too movement was on the rise. Uh, and you have a couple of uh, historical anecdotes in the, in the book uh, about the women's suffrage movement. Uh, you talk about Susan B. Anthony um, uh, in the late 19th century trying to vote. You talk about the protests uh, that, that, would, that greeted Woodrow Wilson upon his inauguration. Uh, what, what do people have to learn from uh, what the original suffragists uh, went through uh, in understanding what women uh, can do today to expand their rights? Well, there's two ways to look at that, but you're talking about Woodrow Wilson. So he comes to Union Station, you know, expected a huge crowd. Where's the crowd? Well, they're at the Women's March, he said. So the first Women's March was not the day after <laughs> the day after Donald Trump was inaugurated. Uh, it was the day after Woodrow Wilson arrived in Washington, and they wanted and they wanted a simple thing, Bill. They wanted the vote. And Alice Paul, who was one of the leaders there, picketed the White House when that was not routinely done. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, at the beginning of his presidency, would tip his cap. Hello, late tip his cap. Hello, ladies, as he walked in, and he got as as he as he, it got under his skin. We didn't have Gallup polling then, but as his popularity went down, he got a little less <laughs> charitable towards them. And when the United States entered World War One, he got much less charitable, and he ordered their arrest. Some of them they went on hunger strikes. They were force fed, which would be considered a war crime today. And so, I what, what's important to know for modern feminists is that. Um, these were real fights, and these women, they, they suffered and they risked, they risked death to get the vote, and so they should use the vote. In terms of today's, today's fights are a little more esoteric. Um, sexual harassment in the workplace is the, the cause of this, the cause of this, the help fueling this, and you have a president who's been credibly accused of sexual harassment in the workplace. So he, the idea that the president here is a target, um, is every bit as logical as it was when Woodrow Wilson was the target? Can you tell more? Tell me more about the Susan B. Anthony story because I think that that's just a great story of how, when she tried to vote. Well, she you know she registered to vote and of course vote Republican, right? She wanted because the the uh, suffrage movement, the suffragists and the abolitionists were originally one movement, and they uh, and after the war was over. Uh, they were told, can you imagine this? Even, you know, even Frederick Douglass, even these great, these great civil rights leaders, uh, you know, pat, now I'm talking figuratively, patting on the head and say, OK, not yet, little lady, um, you know, ex-slaves can vote, but we're really not ready for women to vote. I mean, don't don't go off half cocked here. Uh, you can see how that's stuck in their craws. 
And uh, so, you know, you, in 1872, you had the 14th Amendment. You had Reconstruction. You had all this thing, but you didn't have the women vote. And so uh, Susan B. Anthony said, all right, well, I'm just going to vote. And her view was an interesting one. Uh, it was that the Constitution, by implication, w- w- women should vote, that there was no, it, it couldn't stand scrutiny in the courts or even common sense. And so she went, she lived in the Eighth Ward in Rochester, New York, and she went down to vote. Uh, she, of course, she voted for Grant or, you know, the Republican Party was more represent, re- receptive to, Demo- to women voting, the Democrats, just as they had been to blacks voting. And uh, and every, the Democratic Registrar of Voters wouldn't let her vote. The New York Times and the, the great liberal New York Times made fun of her. The Rochester Union uh, advertiser, the city's, the city's largest Democratic newspaper, uh, said citizenship no more carries the right to vote than it carries the power to fly to the moon. If these women in the Eighth Ward offered a vote, they should all be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Well, they were. and uh, and But this, this thing came into court. It, it sort of got laughed out of court, but it was another, you know, another, what, even in that century, you didn't have women vote. And I have another uh, example on the ratification, uh, This the last male member, of course, they were all male legislators in Tennessee casting a vote because his mother wrote him a letter and told him to do the right thing. And that, the point was, she didn't have to say what the right thing were. Deep down, everybody in this country knew. I wasn't, I wasn't alive, Bill, and you weren't, but you imagine telling people they can't vote because they're women. I, it doesn't even pass the laugh test, and yet, and, and but Susan Anthony had to press the case, and so did all these other women. You also shed some light on two important figures from uh, my neck of the woods in Western Massachusetts, uh, that being Calvin Coolidge and Dr. Seuss. Uh, uh, what 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 should people know about those two that that isn't widely known? Well, th- they should know Coolidge is really given. He's he's never treated fairly in history, and I don't know why. Maybe you do, but he he was a you know he's supposed to be this humorless guy, right? But but he was a he was a person who wasn't given to emotional outbursts. He was a taciturn Yankee, but he had a tragedy in the White House. Uh, his son had died uh, of something. Now that you could go you know get a penicillin shot for, he stubbed his toe on the you know White House tennis court. Uh, and he, and he was he was actually you know dealing with tragedy. The other thing they ought to know about him, and God, this is my pet peeve, Bill. You've probably heard me talk about it. This great line: you can't go into a freshman dorm anywhere in the country without hearing some kid say, and they learned it from a baby boomer. Uh, Coolidge said, "The American, the business of America is business." And they say this to point out, uh, you know, a how dumb Coolidge was, b how corrupt Republicans are, c how stupid capitalism is. I D, E, and F. I don't even know what they're getting at. But this is not what Coolidge said. It's the most one of the most famous lines any president said, and it never happened. He uttered those words, yes, but in a speech in which he made the opposite argument, that the, the chief ideal of American people, he said, is idealism. He said that these businessmen, they, they, they can't be just interested in making money, and most of them weren't. Now, he was talking, what interest he was talking to? Newspaper editors. So here's a quote mangled that a president gave to newspaper people, and he was complimenting them, and we still managed to botch it. I, I'm going to repeat it, Bill. I cannot repeat mm-hmm. too often that America is a nation of idealists. That's, that is the only motive to which they ever give any strong and lasting reaction. Calvin Coolidge. I, I don't know if it's the origin of the of the truncated quote, but I did notice it, it in William Allen White's Coolidge biography, A Puritan in Babylon, which was published in the 30s. 
the the wrong version of that quote is in there. Yeah, so I, I know. I, I, I know. Well, he I wonder said if that's how where it started. I maybe he says it while building to this larger point, but the speech is easily found. But you know, he was was one of those guys. People made fun of him. You don't know why. I, you know, every once in a while, somebody decides they don't. It becomes sort of fashionable. You know, when he when Coolidge died in 1933, Dorothy Parker said to have quipped, "How can they tell?" And Alice Roosevelt said, "You know, his facial expression looks like he was weaned on a pickle." So you know, look, some of the stuff's in good fun, and some of it's partisan. But we should not use that phony quote because Coolidge didn't say that the business of America was business. He said the business of America is idealism, and you can see why I agree with him. Now, uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, you you may not know there's a brand new Dr. Seuss Museum in Springfield, Massachusetts, where where he's from, which has really um, uh, been a huge attraction to uh, to Springfield, which is definitely a city that's been down on its luck for a while. Uh, what should people know about Dr. Seuss that they don't already know? Well, he was a he was a, his father had lost his job in the Depression, and he was a guy who who started writing. Uh, you know, to help his family. What What's the museum like? I've not been there. Uh, well, it, it's uh, it's got two floors. The first floor is mainly for kids. Uh, so it has you know, interactive displays and big, big uh, sculptures of, you know, Horton and, and things like that. But if you go upstairs, you see a lot of uh, uh, Theodore Geisel's artifacts, you know, hand lit, handwritten letters, um, items from 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 his house. Um, and things of that nature. So there, there's there's stuff there for both uh, kids and grownups too to learn more about Dr. Seuss. Well, you you know you'd asked about Nixon, uh, Bill. So in the summer in 1974, that summer when Watergate was coming to a, a, a climax, uh, the Watergate scandal and the, the impeachment of effort against Nixon, uh, Dr. Seuss sent uh, Art Buckwald, the great columnist, a copy of a 1972 book he wrote called Marvin K. Mooney. Will you please go now? Uh, and Geisel had written in hand in the new version, he'd replaced Marvin K. Mooney with Richard M. Nixon. And Buckwell repeated, <laughs> repeated in his column, Richard M. Nixon, will you please go now? You can go on skates, you can go on skis, you can go in a hat, but please go. Is there anything else that you want to add? Bill, I'd, I'd add one thing. I, I mentioned that this book is devoted to immigrants, and, and uh, I, that's a that's a current issue. We're talking about it. It's, it's a cliche to say that America is a nation of immigrants, but, but it's, it's a truism as well. And more than that, when I was doing this book, I found out that when America needed something at a point in our history, an idea or a thing, uh, an immigrant invented it and, or gave it to us. And, and I, I'll give two quick examples, maybe three. Uh, we need to freedom of the press. Start with that. John Peter Zenger. Uh, he's an, he's a he's an immigrant from Germany. He comes over, he starts a press. He's put in jail. He he he's there for eight months. Uh, another immigrant, his lawyer, uh, a Scot a Scotsman, argues for jury nullification. Uh, he's he's accused of libeling the governor of New York, who's appointed by the Crown, and the jury does nullify that. And we, we get we get this idea that if we don't have freedom of the press, we don't have freedom. Immigrants gave that to us um, when we were fighting. The Nazi before even before World War II, uh, we joined the World War II. Albert Einstein writes a letter to Roosevelt and he tells him the, the Nazis are trying to develop this atomic bomb. They're, they they can do this, and out of that comes the Manhattan Project. These other immigrant scientists went to went to Einstein and said, "Who will Roosevelt listen to?" They all it was Einstein, and he did listen to him. And to come full in our century, and it, maybe it seemed like a small thing, but uh, we're having a uh, obesity epidemic. So what happens? 
Jose Andreas invents, invents small plate dining. Tapas, a restaurant, opens in Washington, D.C. And Jose Andreas uh, is an immigrant from Spain, and he's now a, a, become a citizen. He famously fought with Donald Trump over having his restaurant in backed out of having a restaurant in Trump's hotel, but he went down to Puerto Rico and served millions and millions of meals. Uh, this is an immigrant. So when I devote the book to immigrants, I kind of maybe reveal something of my political views, but I just think that we should all be grateful for immigration um, instead of just sort of demonizing immigrants. Excellent point. Thank you so much, Carl Cannon. The book is on this date from the Pilgrims to Today, Discovering America One Day at a Time. Thank you much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. 